Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. But then I'll come your way, turn your blackest night into day. When you're needing it bad, cause a rough time's too bad, I'm gonna look at you and I'm gonna say, who loves you, baby? Now you Oh man, that was awesome. In fact, that entire song is so horrible, it's fantastic. I looked up Who Loves You Baby just to be sure I had the right source of that famous or at least used to be famous saying, and I stumbled across Telly Savalas as Kojak trying his best. Anyway, he's right. By now you ought to know who loves you, baby. It's the government. It's always been the government. No, not family, not friends, not pastors. It's the government. And because they love you, they just want to help you be a better you. There's something. And that's why they make laws and laws and also laws. And then they sit back and survey what they've created and say, you know, this calls for more laws. And they all high five and get back to making more laws to help us because of the almost sickening level of love they have for us. On today's episode, first we'll all be loved, but some of us will be more loved than others, whether you you want it or not, and then we'll be told that this is for our own good, you know, because of the love thing. Then after the bumper, because of how much I love you, I'll give you a two-for-goal update. So just know that when I get that feeling, I want intersectional healing, intersectional healing. Oh, baby. And after that, I think we all need to take a moment or two to sober up. So only because of my love for you, here we go. The old saying goes, you can't have your cake and eat it too, which for most of us makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, what am I doing with my cake if I'm not eating it? It's cake after all. In fact, it's it's my cake. Now I want cake. The saying basically means that you can't live in both states of reality at the same time. If both possessing your cake and eating your cake is what you desire, you can't do both, not at the same time. It's like if you give a kid 10 bucks for a toy. Well, they they can't keep the money and buy the toy at the same time. One of the realities has to go away. In fact, apparently when you dig back into this saying that's now made me hungry for cake, you find out that at some point we actually swapped the order of the words. The original saying, at least according to one site, can be attributed to a British poet from the 16th century named John Haywood. He wrote a book in 1546 entitled Dialogue of Proverbs, which contains some of our most often heard proverbs or idioms, including out of sight, out of mind, and two heads are better than one, and also all's well that ends well. Well, in this book, we read a poem or something, I don't know, it honestly probably made sense 500 years ago, but for our purpose, the line says, would ye both eat your cake and have your cake? See, if you desire to possess a cake, you can. If you desire to eat your cake, you can. But you must give up one of those two realities in order for the other to be true. Unfortunately, this is not a concept we seem to grasp these days, and by we, I mean 
Not you and I so much, other people, woke people, people that are more important than you and I. See, found on the HuffPo via MSN.com, headline, Donald Glover says Tina Fey told him he was a diversity hire on 30 Rock. Now let me set the stage here. Donald Glover is a 40-year-old black man not related to Danny Glover, even though they're both black, thus they look identical, as all black people look alike and look like other black people, or at least that's what we're told by the woke leftist agenda-driven black people when they constantly say things like, I'm doing this for people that look like me. Although, to be honest, I don't think Donald looks anything like Danny, but what do I know? I'm just a Whitey McWhiteface. Anyway, as is my custom, I digress. Donald, not Danny, is a writer, actor, comedian, director, producer, and musician performing under the stage name of Childish Gambino. Tina Fey is a 53-year-old white woman, another writer, actor, comedian, producer, etc., etc., etc. Her big break was, I think, likely her time spent on Saturday Night Live, toward the end of what I'd consider to be the end of the last good years. 30 Rock was a sitcom TV show from 2006 to 2013 that was loosely based on a behind-the-scenes of like a Saturday Night Live type of show with various twists and comedic issues to deal with. Never seen a single episode, but people seem to like it, I guess. Now, apparently the story behind this headline is that back in 2006, 17 years ago, as NBC was getting the pieces put together for this new sitcom, they had a rule that if you hired someone in the correct diversity demographic, they were free, as in their salary wouldn't count toward the budget of the show. I guess they had a corporate bucket of money for those types of people, you know... Those types of people? So because hiring a black was free, whoever made those decisions on the show whittled the potential diverse individuals down to two black men and then decided on Donald Glover. Now this is not new information. According to this article, Glover recently relayed this story for a profile piece that was being done on him by GQ. But Tina Fey said as much in 2018 when interviewed for a profile piece on Glover for The New Yorker. Earlier than that, she mentioned it, at least sort of, in her 2011 memoir entitled Bossy Pants, but argued, quote, his contribution to providing diversity to the writer's room was not based on his race. She said, quote, Donald was our only African-American writer at the time, but his real diversity was that he was our only cool young person who could tell us what the kids were listening to these days, which sounds good and very politically correct and carefully stated, but let's be honest, NBC was not dipping into their diversity hire cash bag for cool young people. He was free to the show because he was black and that's it. He was hired because they needed or wanted another writer. And sure, I'm assuming he had some talent, some resume that he could write, but what put him over the top was that his blackosity didn't impact their budget. Now, the implication in the HuffPo piece is that this was a negative thing. Glover stated that he didn't feel like he belonged there, that he was just an imposter. And HuffPo speculated that, quote, some of his anxiety may have been due to the knowledge that he was hired as part of a diversity initiative at NBC. A fact of which, quote, Glover said that Fay made him well aware of why he was hired. He also added that, quote, there's no animosity between us or anything like that, but Tina Fey said it herself. It was a diversity thing. So my question is, why would there be animosity? Why would the Huffington Post make the implication that this is a bad thing? This is exactly what the Huffington Post wants and promotes. 
This is exactly what NBC wants and promotes. And based on some basic Google searches, I feel pretty confident claiming that this is exactly what Glover wants and promotes. But see, the problem is not the concept of hiring based on diversity. The problem they're having is that it was him that was hired based on his blackness, his diversity, as the main major qualification, at least. Almost like they hired him based on the color of his skin rather than the content of his character. You know, what he is, rather than who he is. In other words, the concept is fine, but when that concept is applied in reality, the individual it's applied to, if they think about it, may wonder if that's all they are, just someone being used to tick a box because of the combination of the DNA of his or her parents. And this, my friends, is the racism of the left. Now, I know it's those darned Republicans, the right-wing, conservative, Bible-toting, gunslinging old white people, you know, people that look like Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and Bernie Sanders, Dianne Feinstein, not Trump, he's orange, and we know that orange man bad, and, uh, well, to be honest, that Democrat Party seems to be pretty old and white, but you get the idea, darn you racist Republicans. Anyway, no, see... That's the problem. The left, the Democrats, those have always, always been the racists. By their very attempts to show how inclusive and diverse they are, they display the racism like a peacock trying to get himself a lady. Now, I won't rehash it here, but if you go back and listen to episodes 29, 30, and 31 in my look at the founding documents, you'll find that the racists, those that consider human beings with more melanin in their skin than us white breads, as being inferior, have always, always been those on the left, the Democrats. The left fought to keep slavery. The left fought to keep blacks from voting. The left fought to keep blacks from owning property. The left fought to keep blacks separate. The left resegregated the military. That was President Woodrow Wilson. Terrible individual. The left has fought and fought to keep blacks on the plantation. And make no mistake, the left has kept the black population in chains and on the plantation to this very day. The chains are now monetary in the form of welfare as well as socially in the form of affirmative action and the like rather than physical chains. And the plantation is the political fields of the Democrat Party. But there is no question that in very large part, the vast majority, oh, they're still enslaved. Think about it. Do you see the Democrats up in arms about blacks killing blacks in the various inner cities? Think Chicago. I mean, this is done with guns, a lot of guns, mostly illegal guns. Are they out in front of the press decrying guns and gun violence and black-on-black violence every weekend? Nope. Those blacks can go right on killing each other. Those are likely not voters anyway, and while we have them corralled and caged, you know, in the inner cities, well, we don't have to worry about them, do we? No, no, no. The only black violence they're worried about is if a cop, hopefully a white cop, fingers crossed, kills a black man regardless of the scenario, or if a white anyone kills or enacts violence on or says mean things to or makes a racial slur against or culturally appropriates or is in the same general vicinity of a black individual. That's politically expedient for our leftist horde. Why is the death cult of abortion so important? Because it's targeted at blacks. And, and who pushes this murderous practice? Who are the guilty, bloodthirsty ghouls? Why, it's those on the left. Since 2012, there have been many, if not most or all years, where more black babies were aborted in New York City than were born. That's a win in the Book of Democrats. 
In 2020, a report came out and stated, quote, abortion in America has contributed to the greatest decline in black population since the first black slaves arrived in the Americas in the 1600s. According to U.S. Census data, there were 18,871,831 black American citizens in 1960. Since Roe v. Wade legalized abortion in 1973, abortion has killed an estimated 20 million black babies, more than the entire black population of 1960. Funny how black abortion has been the largest decline in black population since black slavery. Funny how it's the Democrats, or more broadly the political left, that has pushed all of this. I mean, not funny, haha, like a clown. Funny, huh. Like a sickening funny, a funny that's not really funny at all. See, this is one reason why you don't see the same kind of pandering to those of Hispanic ethnicity, and especially when you speak of those coming from places like Cuba. See, those people of color don't fall in line, at least not as readily, because they've seen this destruction before. They know what socialism is and Marxism is, and they know that these people, the leftists, are far from being their friend or benefactor. Those on the left are the same type of people that these Hispanics are escaping from. This, let's be clear, is not who makes up the vast majority of our illegal alien problem. Those are people that believe the left has promised them stuff and money and are all too eager because they're all too ignorant. And they just want to get right on that Democrat plantation, get their stuff. Let's leave this tangent, rejoin our segment already, or still in progress, shall we? So the leftist position, and yes, there are a large portion of those on the right that are planted firmly on the left in this topic, is that due to past slavery, past racism, past civil rights abuses, the black population is in need of a variety of reparations. Direct reparations are very controversial because they're very difficult to quantify. I mean, first, who do you give those to? All blacks? Well, not all are from Africa, or other nations slaves were captured from. Maybe we give them to all African Americans, or as Joey Mushhead Biden says, African Americans. Well, maybe not all, because some of those African Americans are actually white, and a percentage of the black African Americans here today have no history of slavery in their past, and a small percentage of our black Americans have slave holding in their past. So how do you quantify that? Well, what about those of mixed race, those that have both white and black ancestors? And just looking at the milk chocolate brown color of most blacks in America today suggests that most blacks have a mixture in their past somewhere. So are they of white or black origin? Well, if we're regarding the racist days of yesteryear, the one drop rule was racist and used to discriminate against anyone with even a drop of black man's blood in their stream. But regarding reparations today, the one-drop rule is perfectly acceptable. If you have a drop of black blood in your history, oh, you're black. But if you're of mixed ancestry, should you pay yourself reparations? And then, how much? How do we quantify what's owed to an individual that's never been a slave from an individual that's never been a slave owner? What exactly are the damages that were done to the black man, especially when you look at the country today? The reality is blacks in large part, nearly all blacks have or have access to the same opportunities, education, freedom, wealth, etc. The non-blacks have. And although it's not popular to say it, the quality of life and the opportunities they have today because their ancestors were brought over as slaves 
is unprecedented as compared to their ancestral lands. Shouldn't that count for something? And why wouldn't any reparations also include a one-way ticket back to their ancestral homeland? That suggestion is always met with anger and derision, but if we're trying to make people whole, wouldn't that be the best way to do so? But reparations isn't the goal, equal opportunity isn't the goal, equality isn't the goal, equity really isn't even the goal, and recall that equality means we're all treated the same with equal opportunity to make something of ourselves, whereas equity means the outcome must be the same regardless of what any of us do. Equality is an American ideal, equity is communist and un-American. No, none of those are really the goal. For those on the left, anti-racism is the goal. Sort of. Anti-racism at its core is a religion that elevates the black man to godlike status. The white man is then the guilty sinner that must not only perpetually repent of their white sins, but also attempt to make atonement for their own sins, which is impossible by design. Enslaving the white man to their sin, enslaving the white man to the black man. That's sort of the goal, but that's not even really the goal of the left. Recall all the whites in the Democratic Party? Remember all of them? Yeah, they don't want to get caught up in this thing, at least not on the wrong side of it. No, no, no. Their actual goal is the same as it's always been, to use the black man. The mode of use has changed from physical labor to political labor, but make no mistake, the left has a one-track mind. Who can and must they use to accomplish their end goal? And their end goal, of course, is being in complete and total power and control of everything. And what's fascinating to me is that it's blatantly obvious that the white man, the leftist white man, is once again in large part the originator of, and definitely the evangelist of, the outrage against the white man. The propagator of the concept that the conservatives are all at fault, and the generator of the idea of reparations, anti-racism, and perpetual enslavement to white sin. The white leftists are once again pulling the strings of the black population, enslaving them to an ideology, and we all know it. Everyone knows it, or should know it, and could know it if they just look. Now, yes, I know, I'm speaking in general terms. Not all leftists, white or otherwise, are mentally aware enough to realize or even try to reason their way through this. And not all black Americans buy into this garbage. But generally speaking, when you have 80% or more of an entire ethnicity consistently voting for one party, eh, generalizations can be made with a high degree of confidence. So the question really is, is this narrative perpetuated by the left that the black population is at a massive disadvantage still today, so much so that they must be given money and stuff and special considerations, extra advantages and the like, is that true? Or is this a lie repeated by those on the left, psychologically manipulating an entire ethnic group based on skin color alone in order to keep them enslaved, which is now and has always been their ultimate goal? Well, let's look at some facts, shall we? The breakdown in 2021 of ethnicities in the United States was 59.3% white, 18.9% Hispanic Latino, 12.6% black, 5.9% Asian, 2.3% multiracial, 0.7% American Indian Alaska Native, and 0.2% Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander. So shouldn't we expect that everything, careers, incarcerations, murders, births, media personalities, sports stars, college admissions, adherence to every religion, and every other single thing in the United States would break down in essentially this percentage? I mean, that would make sense, right? But that's definitely not what we see, is it? 
just for one example, let's take sports. Major League Baseball. As of 2017, it was 57.5% white, 31.9% Latino, 7.7% black, 1.1% Asian, and 1.1% other. Sorry, everybody else. You're just, you're just other. So we need to get rid of about half of those Latinos and get more blacks in there, right? That's the start. In fact, on Friday, April 7th, I was watching my beloved Cubs game, which Apple TV had the broadcast rights to that particular game. Ugh. The broadcasters were old white man Rich Waltz and middle-aged former MLBer black man Dontrell Willis. Rich made the comment that Marcus Stroman, the black Cubs pitcher, was the opening day pitcher and there are only five black starting pitchers. And very carefully, almost fearfully, he stated that progress was slow. But the MLB was working through various diversity programs, and then he rattled off some numbers of blacks drafted last year. What, why are we talking about this? What, what does this matter? Why does it matter that there's only a handful of black starting pitchers? Maybe whites and Latinos are better pitchers. Maybe blacks aren't as interested in pitching. Maybe blacks are much better in other positions. Does it have to be a racist thing? Now, to Dontrell Willis's credit, he acknowledged Waltz, but really didn't take the bait, as it were. He kind of moved on to the importance of baseball, to inner cities, and to have representation, you know, for kids, which I agree on both of those points, and that the sport is going global now, but, and I really appreciated the way he said this, Willis said that we shouldn't forget that this is an American game, that this is an American pastime. He didn't mention color or ethnicity, just American so, of course, Apple has to get their race into the mix. The old white guy has to tell the black athlete about how we're finally, oh, we're finally making inroads for, you know, people that look like him. And the black man says, we're Americans. Hmm. Continuing on, the National Basketball Association is 73.9% black, 20.5% white, 2.3% Latino, and essentially 0% Asian. Well, that. That entire mix is screwed up entirely. That's terrible. I mean, we got to really rearrange that. The National Football League is 69.7% black, 27.4% white, with the last two point something percent being basically equally split among Latino, Asian, and other. I mean, again, way too many blacks in there. Where are all of the Latinos in NFL? And the National Hockey League is 184% white. Actually, I have no idea. This The side I was using didn't break down the NHL. But look, either non-whites can't take the cold, don't want to take the cold, or are too smart to be skating around in the cold. But we all know that hockey is very, very white. And whatever. Who cares? What about academics? Let's take another example. Academics. Well, during the Lyndon Johnson presidency in the mid to late 1960s, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed and an executive order was signed in 1965 to improve opportunities for African Americans. Now, LBJ was a known racist, incidentally a Democrat. Shocking. That said, depending on where you look, you'll see sources say that LBJ wasn't racist, that he only played racist in order to get votes, which... What would that say about his party if he had to pretend to be racist to get their votes or some other nonsense, right? But but the preponderance of the evidence is that he was a flaming racist. L LBJ, more than a racist, he was definitely a politician. He likely hated everyone. He's kind of a nasty individual. But he knew that championing the civil rights issues 
was politically beneficial for him. So affirmative action came about. This theoretically started as something to stop businesses, colleges, etc. from discriminating against certain skin colors of people as well as discriminating against women. But even in this, we see the soft racism of the left. If a business was receiving federal funds, they were prohibited from using any sort of aptitude test or other criteria, quote, that tested to discriminate against African Americans. Well, doesn't that just say that the politicians believe black Americans were too stupid? And, and yes, that is exactly what that means. I don't care how they phrased it. That's exactly what it means. Over the next decade, racial quotas were set for colleges and businesses, which brought about lawsuits, which the Supreme Court said that uh, these institutions couldn't use quotas. That's racist. But they can take race into account when evaluating college admissions. And how is that not racist? Now, today, of course, we have DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Again, totally not racist, totally not quotas, but definitely using quotas to decide who to hire based on racism against those with less intersectionality. I know as a white, middle-aged, straight, conservative, Christian male, I'm literally the most discriminated demographic when it comes to the job market. I tick no boxes. And the problem is that we're now entering a time where being black isn't enough either. We'll get to that in a minute. We have so-called experts telling BIPOCs, that's black indigenous people of color, that they're experiencing racial trauma or race-based traumatic stress or RBTS. This is simply the trauma when encountering racism or perceived racism or racial bias or perceived racial bias. But like I said, I'm the most discriminated against racial demographic, but if I were to try to claim RBTS, I'd have some amorphous agender blob lead some sort of brainless chant about how I'm a horrible white person and should just go die. I could just go on forever with this if I wanted to, but I want to hit one more thing before I wrap up this segment. Intersectionality. This is basically looking at everything that makes you, you, and determining how oppressed or oppressive you are. And your intersectionality level can include basically anything you want. Race, ethnicity, gender, gender identity, color, class language, religion, ability or disability, sexuality, mental health, age, education, attractiveness, and basically every single thing you could think of. I found one site that you may want to check out. It's actually fun. Intersectionalityscore.com. Link in the notes. This is an intersectionality calculator using the following aspects to calculate how oppressed or oppressive you are. Color of skin, sexuality, gender, perceived gender, wealth, age, ability, language, birth country, education, and religion. Each category has sliders, and they specifically state that the reason they use sliders is because people live as a spectrum. Oh. Basically, they don't want to oppress you by locking you into something. You can just slide your way where you feel you fit. So... They score you based on where your sliders are, and the closer to zero you are, the less oppressed, meaning the more oppressive you are, the closer to 100, the more oppressed you are, the more bitter you should be, the more special privileges and considerations you deserve, the more you should feel discriminated against, the more angry you should be, and on it goes. After sliding my way to a score, aligning my infinity sliders where I think I fit, I got a four. Now, the comment that accompanies my four was, quote, you are more privileged than 99% of others. Please give more to those less fortunate. Oh, 
Oh, it's about money. Just give money to other people. Okay, well, I shan't be doing that. Now, if I keep all my sliders the same, but slide all the way over to person of color rather than white, my score goes to 32. Now, this is probably considered digital blackface, and I should probably be canceled at this point. But by being who I am, only black, I'm eight times more oppressed. And now I'm more privileged than only 46% of others, still being told to give more to others. However, if, uh, if I slide black over to white, you know, get back over there, but now I'm female, everything else staying the same, I get a 19 as a white female, whereas a black female is a 47. Okay, set them all back where I started. Now I'm gay, a gay white Christian man with a score of 14. But if I'm a gay black Christian man, I'm now a 42. Is still not as oppressed as the straight black female me, however. A black female lesbian Christian gets me at a 57, and we're getting somewhere now, I've made it past the halfway mark. If I make that black lesbian Christian a tranny, I'm sporting a 64, yet still being told to give to others. If I throw in poor, old, and disabled, I'm at a 75. Sliding my way to English is my second language because I wasn't born in the U.S., and I have less education, I'm at an 87. If I take away Christian and throw in being a Jew, I'm a 93. Drop the Jew, add a Muslim, that makes me a 97. But if I'm both a devout Muslim and a devout Jew, don't think about it, I'm a 100. Curiously, if I add in devout Christian at the same time, all three of those in the mix, I drop from a 100 to a 96 because we know that in the United States, Christians are just the most privileged people. So if you want to be the most intersectional, the most discriminated person ever, you need to be a gay, transgender woman of color, poor, old or young, but not middle-aged, disabled, born somewhere other than the United States, with English being your second language, likely because you're less educated, and definitely not a Christian, but a devout Jew and a devout Muslim. Interestingly, if I'm all those things, but I'm white rather than black, that 100 drops to a 72. Also interestingly, with a score of 100, you're still more privileged than 7% of others. And you'll never guess, quote, please give more to those less fortunate. And one more combo, as I think it needs to be checked out. Okay, now I've reset all my sliders of doom back to my four. Changing from male to female, I'm a 19. Now, if I'm a male transgender, that's the exact same as a female. We know they're the same per everything we're being told these days. But no, now I'm only a 12. Proof that being trans doesn't make you the other gender. I mean, this is science, my friends. So do you see what I mean when I say that being black just isn't going to be enough anymore? That doesn't get your score high enough. And this comes back to my premise. Should it be? Should any of these calculations of intersectionality matter? What have we set up and done to ourselves at this point? We decry the barbarism of India's caste system. But haven't we done that to ourselves here? just using different criteria to determine who's better or worse. The caste system is outlawed, or at least the discriminating against those in lower caste is, but that doesn't mean that the population doesn't still buy into the system. And that's what we've done. And it's an interesting system because here, those that are perceived as the most oppressive, the most privileged, are viewed as the bottom feeders, the scum, and are literally the most discriminated against. And those that are screaming at the sky about how oppressed they are are those with the highest level of intersectionality, which means they're viewed and treated as the most oppressed and also the best of the best. Those that are both the most in need of special consideration and assistance 
and those that are placed on a pedestal of quasi-deification. And this is what happens when you leave the realm of reality and logic and start to dwell in the land of fantasy. Do you see at least one reason, one major humanistic reason, why we're seeing such a huge uptick in LGB and especially T these days? Do you see why kids are claiming to be transgender? And do you see why doctors, counselors, the media, celebrities, schools, teachers, and parents are all on board for mutilating children right now? Because we're all being told exactly what these sliders are telling us. You must be the most oppressed class possible to get all the attention and love and adulation and applause. And you're so beautiful and natural and strong and brave. When all kids are told, is it to be the color you are? Straight, cis, average, middle class, Christian? Eh, nobody cares about you. But if you chopped off your dingus, well, now you're someone. Of course, if you'd followed any celebrity news, you'd know of Jazz. Oh, was he on uh, TLC or whatever? Following this confused boy and his perverted abuse of mother through his time of going through a full conversion to, quote, womanhood. Just recently in an episode, he had a slight meltdown that he still doesn't feel right. And that nasty skank of a mother telling him, oh, you're fine. It's all fine. You're making us a lot of money. We're really rich because I encourage you to destroy yourself. I might have read between the lines on that last bit, but that's what she was saying. Even this freak of nature Mulvaney, the man that likes to pretend he's a doll or a six-year-old girl, he's either just a sick perv or he's severely mentally unstable or most likely both. He even said the other day that he doesn't feel right yet, and that's after, as we all know, 365 entire days of him being a woman. Ugh. See, and there are so many roads we could go down here, but bottom line, when you leave God's word and try to make sense of this world through the religion of atheism, evolutionism, and humanism, you get a system that's all things to all people, or some things to all people, or no things to some people. It's a world viewed in a maze of funhouse mirrors where nothing makes sense anymore. And this is what you get. On the nearly rational end, almost, you find that people like Donald Glover, who is a straight, male, cis, rich, younger, able-bodied person of color, born in the U.S., a native English speaker with a college degree in dramatic writing from New York University, growing up as a Jehovah's Witness, but now doesn't identify as anything religiously, well, he scores a 39. He's in the oppressive class. But because he's black, he's someone that needs a handout. And I suspect that if it was someone else, Donald would agree with that. But it doesn't feel right that it happened to him. And why? Because he knows he doesn't need a handout. But he's still got one. It doesn't feel right. That's because it's not right. We're telling people that because of what DNA you happen to have, you're too stupid or too useless, too incapable, too whatever, and you need all sorts of handouts and hand-ups. You don't need equality. You need equity. Sorry, black man. If only you were more evolved, but you're not. Just, just stay here on my plantation. We'll help you out. We know you don't know no better. At the same time, we're telling people that the only way they can be anyone is if they're super oppressed, which again requires them to pitch their tent in the leftist concentration plantation, at least if they want to feel accepted, if, if they want to be told how special they are, if they want to get the bennies for being whatever they're told they should want to be. It's a sick, twisted, demonic game that's being played with humanity. And that's really what it comes down to. 
We, meaning humans, know that there are only two genders. We know that there is only one race of humans. We know that homosexuality is counterintuitive and against the natural, and I'd add created order. Not only does the Bible tell us so with the very establishment of all creation by God, but the truth is written on our very hearts. Someone can deny it with their minds as much as they want, but at least for some time, until the heart is fully hardened and the conscience is fully seared, everyone knows the truth. Donald Glover, by his words, makes it clear that he's hurt by the fact that he was hired because he was black, not because he was young, hip, or a competent comedic writer. Now, he might have been the best person for that job on 30 Rock, but he'll never know that because he was hired for his blackness, not his skills or ability. Jazz didn't want to be female. Jazz wanted help. Jazz was made famous for one thing, being jazz, changing from a confused boy to an even more confused and now physically mutilated boy presenting as a girl. Dylan Mulvaney, oh man, I have no idea, but he's got a mental illness that has created someone that will destroy his own life to get attention. We're told that we can both eat our cake and have our cake, and this is the story that's been handed to so many in this world, and so many will never know if they're loved or hated, hired or fired, because of who they are or what they are. Because of the system that's been set up, a large percentage of the population now has no cake at all. There's no choice. There's no satisfaction. There's nothingness. And they're feeling it. They know it. Can you imagine this world if instead of destroying humans physically and psychologically, we instead taught facts and truth from the author of truth, from the creator? What a different world we'd be in. But what we've created instead is a world where God is pushed to the side or really dismissed altogether. Biblical truth is replaced with human desire and science is replaced with feelings. And we now see a society where the mind is breaking, where the will is dying, where life is pointless, where the intentions of the heart is only evil continuously. And this is where more and more Christians are staring up at the sky right now saying, come now, Lord Jesus. And I agree, Jesus coming down to rescue his children, his bride will start the timer counting down to a day when we don't have to worry about any of this anymore. But as the Bible says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, we don't know when that day will be. We need to be ready. And until that day, we need to be about our father's business, meaning we need to be fighting against this insanity, this destruction of humanity, both what's been done already and what they're doing and planning to do mentally and physically and most importantly and ultimately spiritually. We need to tell a lost, dying, searching world of humanity that there is one truth. There is real reality out there. There is a better way. There is acceptance and freedom. We need to tell people about the good news of Jesus. I've said many times before that we are not a theocracy, and not only are we not a theocracy, but we don't want to be a theocracy. Although the immediate thought for Christians, or those of other faiths, is that the world, or specifically the country, would be a better place if only a leader in my faith ruled over a bureaucracy of those also in my faith to enact tenets and rules according to my faith on all of the heathens. The problem is, we're fallen, sinful humans, all of us, those governing and those being governed, which means we literally could not run a theocracy without ending up in massive injustices. Proof, you say? Well, look at what happened in Israel with the Jews, the time of the kings, the time of the Sanhedrin with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Look at the various past Muslim caliphates. 
Look at the current Muslim theocracies. How about the time of the English kings or the Inquisition? There's literally never been a time in history where a theocracy has worked long term. And that's because the only ruler that could ever do it perfectly while enacting perfect justice and perfect mercy hasn't arrived yet. At least not in a ruling capacity. But he's on his way. Jesus is the only one that will ever be able to rule this world as a theocratic ruler and do it correctly. Welcome back to the American Genesis, episode 34, part 16, in our look at the amendments to the Constitution. And today we're going to take a look at the 18th Amendment, which incidentally is two-thirds of the way through all of the amendments that have been made to the Constitution in 250 years, which is amazing to think about in itself. Now, a little background, this amendment was sent to the states in December of 1917 and was ratified just over a year later in January of 1919. This is what I would call the third in a string of three poor amendment ideas coming after a long line of relatively neutral to very good amendments. This one was so poorly thought through, in fact, that it's the only amendment that had another amendment crafted to get rid of it. So really there have only been 25 amendments that have been permanent to this day. Now, by now you know what this one is. This is the uh, quit your drinking amendment. So what does the 18th amendment actually say? Well as always let's start with the text and go from there. This one is broken down into three sections. Section one, after one year from the ratification of this article, the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors within the importation thereof into or the exportation thereof from the United States and all the territories subject to the jurisdiction thereof for beverage purposes is hereby prohibited. Section 2, the Congress and the several states shall have concurrent power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Section 3, this article shall be inoperative unless it shall have been ratified as an amendment to the Constitution by the legislatures of the several states as provided in the Constitution within seven years from the date of the submission hereof to the states by the Congress. Okay, so let's work backwards on this one, as section 2 and 3 are relatively quickly covered. Section 1 is the meat of the amendment. Section 3 is something that can be put into amendments. It has been put into amendments, but it doesn't need to be. It's a drop-dead date. When amendments are agreed to by the Congress, they send them to the states for ratification. In order to ratify the amendment, three-quarters of the states are required to sign off on it. Rather than have an amendment just sit there forever, potentially pushing it out years or decades or even centuries into a time that is no longer anything, like when the amendment was first passed, and suddenly that last state ratifies it and poof, it becomes law, and then everyone's confused as to what's going on. No, you can put a drop-dead date where the amendment proposal just dies if it's not ratified in a time limit. This is the first amendment that this drop-dead date, this time limit, was put into. Now, I think you can see how controversial the Congress thought this amendment would or might be by the fact that they put a seven-year time frame on it. To this point, the first ten amendments, the Bill of Rights, took about two and a quarter years. Most took a year or less, with the Income Tax Amendment, number 16, taking just under four years to ratify. Well, they put a time limit of seven years on this thing, so to me, their belief that it would be ratified must have been low. 
Section 2 is something we've seen pop up a few times recently in our look at the amendments, a rider that says, uh, hey, if you don't do it, we can make more laws that will specifically force you to do it. Now, this one's a little different from what we've seen previously, though, in that the past riders were that the Congress stipulated that they could enforce it with appropriate legislation if needed. This is the first one where they not only invoke their own power to create additional enforcement laws, but they say the states can also make additional enforcement laws and that both the states and the Fed had powers to make these laws at the same time. Again, this says to me that the Congress had ah, low confidence, little hope, that this amendment would do what they were wanting it to do, and they knew that this was going to have to be a massive policing effort to make this happen. And that brings us to Section 1, simply stated upon ratification, which incidentally happened on January 16th, 1919, the country would have one year to sober up and dry out. At that point, neither the states nor the territories would be able to legally make, sell, import, or export alcohol made for consumption as a beverage. So where did this come from? Well, the overall answer is the temperance movement. This was a movement that wanted the consumption of alcohol to end. Now, why? Well, there were actually multiple reasons. Now, one would think that this is a Christian uh, community type thing, that they would have a large role in this and they're pushing it. And yeah, I mean, they did play a part, but this was viewed as a progressive movement. In fact, saying that if alcohol consumption was prohibited, it would create better communities, happier families, eliminate poverty, reduce sexual immorality, reduce violence, reduce accidents at the workplace and in general, and just make the world better. This, in a phrase, would be what we would call social engineering, trying to force the society into a direction for whatever your reasons are. Now, although as a Christian who doesn't drink alcohol, never have, I couldn't possibly care any less if alcohol was eliminated from society. But as a Christian that understands what the Bible says, alcohol has never been prohibited to the Christian or anyone. The only prohibition in the Bible is getting drunk from overconsumption. Additionally, from a Christian standpoint, you can't prohibit your way to morality. Alcoholism isn't a disease like we're led to believe these days. In fact, any and every addiction is essentially termed a disease in our current era. And sure, there's a physical and psychological aspect to addiction of any kind, but the reality is, if we're being honest, addiction, as with any sin, is a heart issue. A disease, say cancer, has no heart component. It's a physical ailment. Addiction can be conquered through psychological means. Cancer cannot. So you can dump out the liquor, you can lock up the cabinet, you can get a sponsor to uh, help keep you honest, but if you don't deal with the heart issue, you'll never be able to overcome your addiction. Not saying you shouldn't do those things, but hiding and avoiding alone will never change the heart. The reality is alcoholism has always been a problem. The earliest recorded incident happened at the end of the flood when Noah got drunk. I mean, the joke is, after living on a boat, no matter how large, with only a few humans, all those animals in those conditions, landing to find everything utterly destroyed, I mean, who could blame him? And of course, we have the incident of Ham seeing his father Noah passed out naked, then telling the brothers about him, and the curious curse that Noah spoke against Ham's son Canaan, not his son Ham, 
who appeared to be the offending member, but Noah's blessings on his sons Shem and Japheth. So what exactly happened there? How did Canaan get mixed up into all of this? And I have no idea. But what we see is that drunkenness early on resulted in bad things. Proverbs 23, 29 to 35 tells us this, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has strife, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Now, in my opinion, if too much is no good, then we should carefully think about some in the first place. If the end of the road leads to turmoil, pick a different road to travel on. But as I said, I know what the Bible says and what it prohibits and what it does not. So I'll only be silently judging you with so much strict Northern Baptist-rooted judginess. Next thing I know, you'll be dancing. <clears throat> now, prior to the early 1900s, in fact, just prior to the 1800s, temperance movements started popping up in various states. Generally, they started, as you and I might understand the concept of tempering something, to control it rather than outlaw it. And that's what many of these early movements did. They pushed for a small to moderate consumption, no consumption on the Sabbath, you know, things like that. But of course, even these ideas drew the ire of the citizens. By the early 1820s, the movement died down, not out, just down due to infighting and I guess probably outfighting as well. But by the mid-1820s, it resurged and was pushed by the newly formed American Temperance Society and some Protestant and Catholic church leaders. But again, only one decade later, more infighting. Should it be no drinking or only moderate drinking? Should it be done through persuasion, even sketchy moralism, or should it be a law prohibiting consumption altogether? By the late 1830s, the Prohibitionists won out, and temperance heretofore would be the same and known as Prohibition. By the Civil War, 13 states and territories had passed statewide Prohibition laws, or at least temperance per the old definition laws. Then the Civil War happened, and most of those Prohibition laws were repealed because it turns out that tax revenue for the Northern War effort eh, was just more important that's how committed they were to the morality of Prohibition, just saying. Temperance and Prohibition took a backseat to the Civil War, slavery, and then Reconstruction, but by the later 1800s, it started to gain steam again. By 1890, one of the great moral blights on our nation, Mormon polygamy, was defeated, so all moral police eyes turned to the evils of drink. Per Wikipedia, this cause was championed by, quote, a diverse coalition, doctors, pastors, and eugenicists, Klansmen and liberal internationalists, business leaders and labor radicals, conservative evangelicals and liberal theologians. You see, this was not a Christian thing. 
This was not a religious thing, at least not much of one. This was a social engineering, an interventionist thing. When you boil it down, it was another grasp for control over man to force humanity in a specific direction. And I guarantee that each one in those groups that I just mentioned had their own reasoning and their own motives for banding together to fight the demon drink. States, again, as I think they should have the right to do, took up the cause on their own. And by 1916, 23 of the 48 states had some laws on the books against saloons or banning the sale or manufacture of alcohol. So the Congress, never wanting to let the chance to jump in there and enact their power, seeing the apparent direction of the nation, well, they took up the cause too. By August 1917, the Senate passed a resolution to prohibit alcohol by a vote of 65 to 20, with 36 Democrats and 29 Republicans voting to prohibit, and 12 Democrats and 8 Republicans opposing the ban. And the House followed suit a few months later in December, keeping the language the same but putting the seven-year drop-dead date on the resolution. The House passed it with a vote of 282 to 128, with nearly identical splits in both the Democrat and Republican parties, 141 Ds and 137 Rs for, 64 Ds and 62 Rs against. The next day, the Senate voted 47 to 8 to accept the House's slightly modified resolution, and it was sent to the states. In just over one year, enough states ratified the amendment, and it was adopted into the Constitution. Between January 1918 and February 1919, 45 of 48 states ratified this proposal. New Jersey waited until March of 1922, three years later, to throw their hat in the ring, and Connecticut and Rhode Island told the prohibitionists to go pound sand. They had no interest in this amendment. Didn't really matter, though, as it passed without them. So, what happened? Well, I think that most of us know what happened. It didn't work. Initially, there was a general compliance. Consumption went down. Hospitalizations due to alcohol-related causes went down. But as I said, forced morality is a losing proposition. Very soon after the population generally complied, creative, let's say entrepreneurial people discovered a potential market for those that would like some liquor. And this, of course, resulted in bootleg alcohol, poorly made and extremely dangerous alcohol, deaths due to home-brewed wood alcohol or methanol, they were poisoned by that, and a brand new family of crimes and criminals. A large number of arrests with almost no effect on the underground market meant overcrowded prisons, which meant less arrests and lesser sentences, and the whole thing became an unenforceable joke. Additionally, the mob, which was already present but relatively small scale, was empowered beyond anything they had ever been before. This gave organized crime a massive boost in power and wealth and showed the powerlessness of our government and law enforcement and even on our borders, our military. So we now know how this ended, at least most of us do, and if you don't, well, just keep listening, you'll find out in a few weeks. The question is, what have we learned by this overreach of power, this attempt at mandating morality, this quasi-theocratic type move? Well, not much, to be honest. Look at the illegal drug trade. We see the exact same pattern. Drugs declared illegal, gangs rather than the mob, although make no mistake, the mob is still alive and well and heavily involved in illegal drug manufacturing and trafficking. But gangs are making and distributing drugs with well-established underground distribution networks. Those who want drugs are able to get drugs with relative ease. 
Law enforcement catches some, but not most. What have we seen as of the last decade or so? Well, the cry by leftists mostly to relax drug laws, release certain imprisoned individuals for certain drug crimes due to overcrowding in prisons. We're hearing more and more calls for legalizing certain drugs, for lesser penalties for certain drug-related offenses, and on and on. It's the exact same pattern we saw with the prohibition of alcohol. It's repeating with drugs. And we could apply the same type of thing to propose bans on internal combustion engines, vapes, TikTok, guns, or anything else you could think of. The more you ban, the more criminals and criminal enterprises you create. So do we just not ban anything? Just adopt the libertarian worldview and allow absolutely everything? No, no, we don't. We don't do that. But it should make us think about how we're doing what we're doing. And even before that, we need to think carefully about why we're doing what we're doing. And then we need to realize that the rapidity and degree of pushback is directly related to the relative importance of the thing being banned and the morality of the nation. Take TikTok, for instance. If TikTok was banned from the United States, public, private, every state, neither Apple nor Google allowed the install of the app on their respective devices, any apps installed were centrally removed, just poof, gone. Blockers were set up so TikTok couldn't enter our shores somehow. Sure, there would be a very loud, very vocal, very short-lived cry of outrage from a large number of people. And then it would die down, someone would create an app similar, people would adopt that, and nobody would care anymore. So should we ban TikTok? Well, there's a case to be made. Why should we do it? Well, because it's quite obviously Chinese spyware with code that's been proven. It absolutely allows the Chinese to obtain oodles of information if they so choose. Of course, we know they would never do that. But how should we do it? Well, first of all, I don't know that we should do it, to be honest. But I think the public sector is not allowing it. I think that's a good start as to how. And then we go from there. But the reality is, in the long run, nobody would care. I mean, that really, nobody would care. The same could be said about vapes or flavored vapes, right? I mean, that's it's the same kind of thing as TikTok. Someone will figure something out and then nobody will care. What about internal combustion engines forcing all of us onto electric vehicles? Well, to some, this is a moral issue. To most, it's not. This comes down to the why. The stated why, of course, is spurious at best. At this point, you either buy into the man-caused global warming narrative or you don't. This dictates not only the urgency of your why, but also the morality of your why, at least your perception of morality. The how must be called into question as well, though. Is this push being done the best way? And no, it's just really not. It's being done probably in about the worst way it could be done. Only the complete naive believe that we can go to all electric everything practically immediately with no repercussions. The how is clearly being done for other purposes, not to save the planet. Unfortunately, running an underground bootleg internal combustion engine with an underground bootleg gasoline network is harder to do than, you know, run and shine. This must be done through government channels to some degree. The same can be said about outlawing guns or even just some guns. You know, gun owners are willing to capitulate to violations of their Second Amendment to a point 
but eventually that prohibition goes too far and then an underground network of guns takes over. This is already being done by the criminal element in the country. The expansion to those that are currently law-abiding, responsible gun owners, it wouldn't be difficult, especially with the availability of 3D printing. Again, you need to ask, why is this being discussed and how do they want to accomplish this? And is owning a gun a moral issue? And then this brings us back to illegal drugs. As I said, we're seeing the same kind of issues with the prohibition of drugs that we saw with alcohol, only in what appears to be slow motion. Sure, the pace is quickening, but it's still relatively slow. And why? Well, because of the perception of the morality of illegal drug use. For decades, these drugs have been universally perceived to be immoral. That perception is shifting, and the speed of the shifting perception seems to be increasing, and we see the push to legalize drugs likewise picking up. Jumping back to alcohol, at first the perception was that it was immoral, which corresponded to a steep decline in use, but rapidly that perception shifted, and the push to legalize, or in some other way obtain alcohol, became the general desire of the population. Slow motion, but this is exactly what's happening with illegal drugs. The problem is that we've never addressed the why. This time, why is referring to why are people using drugs? We haven't addressed the heart issue, and I feel confident saying that uh, we never will. A nation that is systematically eliminating the one possible avenue to address the brokenness in the human heart will never be able to legislate morality. It's literally impossible. So as we wrap up this segment of the American Genesis, I'll say this. I firmly believe that we need to fight illegal drug use to the bitter end. Knowing this is a fight that we are destined to lose, knowing that the end will be incredibly bitter, it's a fight worth fighting as hard and as long as we can. Beyond that, our nation needs to elect people that don't just look at what they want to do, what they believe their reality is. We need to elect people that look at why we're enacting laws, including prohibitions and bans, and how the prohibition is being proposed to be done. Unless there are ironclad answers to both of those questions, the answer to what should we do about and fill in the blank is nothing. And that's what should have been done and ultimately what will be done with a prohibition on alcohol. But that's going to have to wait for a few weeks. And now that I've probably taken up too much of your time and you're screaming at your phone or computer or device that you're listening to this on saying, we got it, Dan, come on, move on. Yeesh. I guess that's all that's left to say is, uh, until next time. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the Word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Ooh, okay, well today you get a twofer, don't you? Update on goals for weeks 12 and 13. Hey, I hope you all had a restful, fun, and most importantly, a blessed Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed, that's right. Well, it's been an interesting couple weeks. There have been uh, some highs and some lows I've laughed, I've cried, I've eaten too much, and as always, that's where we we need to start. So, here's um, here's what happened. It's, it's, there was this monster that lives in my closet, and he came out every night and he fed me as I slept, and I didn't even know it was happening. And, and no, 
Nothing? Okay. Well, how about this? I was taken prisoner by some very bad people, and they chained me to a table and kept feeding me foodstuffs, tender, savory pastas, well-seasoned meats, creamy milk, chocolates, and they threatened me. They said that if I didn't keep eating, they'd just stop feeding me, and I, I mean, what, you know, what would you do? What could I do? Nothing. I could do... No? Not buying it, huh? Okay. Well, fine. So, last week, week number 12, I didn't gain any weight. Yeah, I didn't lose any weight either. I just kind of broke even. But this week, I lost 0.2 pounds. Now, I'd like to blame the kidnappers or the monster or just one of those plateaus that happens sometimes when you diet. But those would be lies. Dirty, filthy lies. No, the reality is I slacked off. For the most part. Not entirely, but for the most part. And and although I can blame some of it on just, you know, life happens because it does, you know, meaning that some nights just got too late to work out or I was just too tired. It, it happens. And I also, I did a good deal of work out in the yard. I'm working on cleaning up and trimming up and repairing a fence, the chain link fence that encompasses the rear of the palatial estate. So I was just kind of wiped out by the evening. Now I can blame most of it on me, some of it on that stuff most of it on me, just waiting too long to get up and work out or or snacking too much and saying, man, it'll probably be fine. Well, it wasn't fine. Now, the good thing is I didn't go up in weight um, and I'm still 4.3 pounds ahead of my goal with a loss of 23.8 pounds total in 13 weeks with a weight, total weight of 190.6 pounds. The bad thing is, as I elaborated in a previous update, I feel pretty good right now. I moved back down to my not quite as fat belt, and judging by the two belts, I've probably lost a good two and a half to three inches from my waist, more accurately from my belly. The reason that's bad is because this is the dangerous part of our little game, at least for me. I feel good, my back feels good, the lungs feel good, my balance is good. I could probably just hang out here for a bit, but but no, I've I've still got somewhere around 15 pounds to go. So at this point, it's less motivation and just more sheer willpower. Hopefully DC Talk doesn't mind me grabbing this from their YouTube page, link in the notes. So Monday, I got back at it. I honestly don't have that much longer to go to get this done. A couple months, give or take, a few weeks here or there, that's it's really not that long. I just need a push to get it done. Unfortunately, this Saturday I'll be hitting a buffet for breakfast, meeting an old friend I haven't seen in oh, probably well over a year, which is sad, and we're just going to see if we can get to the Golden Corral and have them ask us to leave be you know because we've made a spectacle of ourselves. Not sure how all that will work come next Tuesday morning, but I also don't want to pass up this opportunity, so we'll make it work one way or another. For now, I've made last week and this week solid dark red for pounds lost, but still green for overall loss. Now, I'm going to skip pages red for a moment, as that'll take a few minutes to cover here, and in the interest of time, I'll say that both 
Bible reading and devotions have stayed a solid green. Both of those are basically moving up or down a percent or two each as compared to my target pace, depending on what I do, but they're essentially flat week over week. In fact, it would take a fairly extraordinary act at this point to swing either of them one way or the other, such as doing multiple devotions on a daily basis or reading a week or more per day in the daily Bible or doing the opposite, just putting them down and saying, yeah, I'm done with this. So Bible reading is currently at 157.9% of my target pace and devotions are at 122% even of my target pace. Both of these are going well, solid greens all around. Okay, as for pages read, So my current method of working my way through the deeper, thought-provoking book slowly but surely and tackling other topical, picturesque, or story-type books in the morning and at night when my intense focus isn't as sharp seems to be working well. Last week I read 274 pages. This week I added another 471 equivalent pages. I'll explain that little extra qualifier in just a moment. So my total read for 2023 so far is 2,257 pages, and that puts me at 188.1% of my target pace. Remember, my goal was 3,600 pages for the year, so I'm well on my way to crushing that one, assuming all things stay basically the same. And that happens sometimes with goals. I had a couple bad reading years in a row, so I thought I'd kind of ease into it, and I've, I've kind of flipped that around 180 back to my 2018-2019 glory days of reading. So what have I read? Much. And as I promised before, I'll run through what I've read and give you my opinion or review or recommendation or whatever. So first was a book entitled Inspiration from Creation by Stuart Burgess and Dominic Statham. Statham. The basis of this book is that man cannot improve on God's design. Now, this is a relatively short book, about 129 oversized pages with a good number of illustrations. Both of the authors are engineers, teachers, and authors, obviously, and Stuart specifically has engineered a number of innovative designs for a number of high-profile projects, an expert in something called bio-inspired design. They show how man is not only inspired by God's design, but also baffled by it not able to reverse engineer with the same kind of success, at the same kind of scale, with the same speed capability, with the same reliability, mechanisms found in anything from bacteria to plants to animals to humans. As they analyze these various systems, they easily show how evolution would never and could never develop anything like these due to the irreducible complexity. In layman's terms, unless all components popped into existence at once, none of it would have ever worked. So would I recommend this book? Oh, absolutely. And not just for academics or engineers. This would be good for anyone. It's written at a level that anyone from kids to adults, from highly educated to uneducated, could understand the magnificence of God's design. The next book on the list took like a day to read. And when I say a day, I mean like four or five hours tops. And I've become somewhat of a slow reader in my old age. This one was The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Now, I'd wager to say that a good chunk of my listeners have already read this one. I know that a lot of people like this book. I'll say this. It was, I would say, a mostly entertaining read. Um, I kind of took it as a poor man's pilgrim's progress. That was kind of the feeling I got. 
I had some theological issues with it. I think, whether intentional or not, I I felt a little purgatory-ish about it. Uh, it did have some interesting imagery, and it was definitely a creative way to allegorize this life and the world and the gospel. I'm not sure I'd agree with how everything was imagined, however. But that said, would I recommend this book? Well, I wouldn't not recommend the book, but I don't think this would be anywhere near the top of my list of books to recommend to someone. And I'll just say this, I'm sorry, because I know I most likely just offended someone. Okay, on the opposite end of the spectrum, the next book is entitled Fractals, The Secret Code of Creation by Jason Lyle. Now, honestly, I remember buying this book. It was a last-minute buy. I think it was on the sale table at the Ark Encounter in the gift shop at the Welcome Center, and it was getting close to closing. I needed to make my choices and pay for my stuff and get on the bus to go back down to the parking lot. Now, I thumbed through it really quick, and it looked like a very nice... I'd say like a coffee table type book of what appeared to be really cool images, beautiful images of like snowflakes and frost patterns. And on my shelf, it sat for a few years. Well, I finally picked it up and wow, was I wrong. This was actually a book based totally on graphing some relatively simple mathematical equations called Mandelbrot sets. Now, I'm not going to get into it here, but based on the form of the equation, the boundaries you set, and then the coloration you choose to represent if a point on the graph fits the equation or not, the patterns are simply amazing. And the way the patterns work, the logic behind the repetition, the fact that the patterns, as you zoom in closer and closer to the graph, seem to repeat to infinity... And so many more amazing aspects of these equations and graphs that there is no way evolution could develop a mathematical system like this. These fractals unquestioningly display the infinite mind of God. So would I recommend it or not? Well, I would definitely recommend this book. But one caution, if you're not a math person, either because you don't like math or math doesn't like you, you likely will glaze over and possibly get a little lost in the deeper discussions of the math behind what's being displayed. But I think that he does a very good job of explaining what's going on in both deep mathematical terms while backing it up with what I'd call layman's terms. Now, this is not really a kid's book, but I'd recommend it for most Okay, so I made the comment earlier that I read 471 equivalent pages. Well, this book is one of the two I read with a lot of full-page color pictures. The book itself was 216 pages long, but there were nearly 80 pages that had no writing whatsoever, just amazing images. So since this is an oversized book, I didn't count any pages that had only pictures, but I did count all pages that had at least some writing as some pages had more than what I'd count as a standard page, and some had less, I kind of figured it would even out. So, out of the 216 pages, I only counted 138 equivalent pages. Okay, next book was the other oversized book with a lot of full-colored picture-only pages. This one is entitled Dire Dragons by Vance Nelson, part of his Untold Secrets of Planet Earth series. 
I think there are five of these books in the series, and I think I've got four of them, something like that. Anyway, this is a book where this author took years traveling around the world looking at verified artifacts from the last few thousand years, all depicting dragons, or as we call them today, dinosaurs. He compared them with artist renderings of dinosaurs based on known skeletons and expertly made the case that even up to maybe three or four hundred years ago, dinosaurs lived with man. The evidence presented is uh, its pretty hard to argue or refute, and it totally destroys the evolutionary idea of dinosaurs millions of years ago and man much later and never the twain shall meet. Now, this book is 172 oversized pages long, but with all the full page color images, I only counted 89 of those pages toward my total. So would I recommend this book? Definitely. I think anyone would really enjoy it and learn a lot. It would definitely give you ammunition to shoot down the evolutionary theory. Now, kids may need some help with this one in, in some places. Just depends on the kid. But I would definitely recommend it for anyone. And that one was the last of my less deep books. Uh, those were, uh, you know, broken into bite-sized chunks or they weren't quite as deep. They were stories. Uh, I had to allocate less focus on those books in order to enjoy them. The final book over the last two weeks that I finished is the one that I went low and slow on, the deep focus requiring book. This one is entitled Age of Opportunity, written by Paul David Tripp. The subtitle is A Biblical Guide to Parenting Teens. Now this one was recommended to me and I'm very happy for the recommendation. I don't generally underline or highlight or write in books, but there are some books that you look at and you think, okay, this one's an exception. And this one definitely was. I've got stuff highlighted all over in this book. Now, this is a 251-page book, and it's not just, uh, you know, a here's how to handle those horrible teen years type of book. It's a book that not only gives biblical guidance on how to view and embrace your teen and her or his teen years, but how to look at yourself as well, as your interaction and relationship with your teen is a two-way street. Now, I told the person that recommended this book to me that I could sum up what I read in three points. One, wow, have I been doing everything wrong. Two, I need to really work at incorporating some of this advice in my life with my kid, but I have to be like a ninja or she's going to think I'm dying or something, right? And three, I easily see how in my relationship with my Heavenly Father, I am literally the rebellious, irritable, emotional, reclusive teen. And God is the parent. In other words, I'd like to think that this book gave me ideas for not only how to have a relationship with my kid, but also, as a kid, how to have a relationship with my father. So, would I recommend this book? Absolutely. But I'd recommend it to parents of teens or parents who will soon be experiencing the teen years. Don't read it too early as you won't remember it. Don't read it if your kids are grown past, I'd say, early 20s. There's probably still some good stuff even in the late teen years, the early 20s. Uh, I don't think it would do much good for you if you read it and they were a whole lot older than that. And don't read it as a kid. At least, I don't think it would be worth your time. I mean, you might glean a little bit out of there, but it's really not geared for a child or a teen or whatever. You're just not going to benefit from it. Now, the pages I mentioned, 
in all these books total. They don't add up to the total that I mentioned, and that's because I'm deep into my next light reading type of book, and I count those pages in my total, but I don't tell you about the book until I finished it. And that's it. Those are my weeks 12 and 13 updates. I know this update's a little bit longer, but hey, it's two weeks of updates. Those are the books I've read. I've shown you my failure in my weight losting, and now it's up to you. Take a look at your goals. Figure out where you're succeeding and where you're falling short. Gird up your loins like a man. Ask God for his wisdom, strength, and power, and face those challenges, those temptations, head on. Okay, bye. <laughs>